Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Arnaud de la Fouchardière, who has received training in clinical dermatology, surgical pathology, and molecular genetics. He currently is in a pathology lab of the Cancer Care Hospital of Lyon, France, and he centers his practice on second opinion cases limited to melanocytic tumors, and he looks at over 2,000 cases per year. He is specialized in the molecular classification of such melanocytic tumors, especially in children, and has studied many rare variants. He has described a number of new entities and genetic findings in this field, and you can find him on Twitter at Melanopath. Welcome to Arnaud. Hey, hi, thank you to have me today. I'm really excited about this uh, podcast recording. Thank you. I'm very excited as well. <laughs> well, first off, I will ask you to share a short anecdote about yourself to help us get to know you. When I started medical training, I was a dermatologist and I had already completed most of my training. What really got me into path is looking at the biopsies of the lesions I had seen. So I was looking at this patient. I had no idea what he had. And I just rushed to the lab as soon as I knew the slides were out to look at them under the microscope. And it seemed very obvious that this was cutaneous lichen sclerosis, which can look very cl clinically strange. And I really thought, wow, this is great because this tool is really powerful. It's better than my eyes. I should get interested in this. I really wanted to learn more about this. And that's how I slowly shifted from dermatology to dermpath. Oh, cool. In Europe, did you have to do a whole separate pathology training? Uh, it was two and a half years of training of dermatology, and then I did two and a half years training of general search pathology. In the U.S., you may know this, but you can do dermpath from dermatology training or from pathology training. I'm derm trained, and very much I do. Sometimes I get very excited to rush back and see the Derm path slides to see the diseases under the microscope. And we're going to move on to a second question, which is how do you define and use emotional intelligence? I think this can apply to all areas of life. I wanted to focus on teamwork. For me, this is related to the awareness of your professional surroundings and all the people you're working with. And it's like really adapting to it and it means caring about other people's. It means like you know when to make a joke and you're able also to say to someone what they need support or help and give them help and create a positive work environment. Maybe it relies on doing or saying what matters at one time in the day when something happens. You're not delayed. You immediately understand the situation and adapt to it. So basically, you're giving a lot of energy to other people and the hope of getting some back, but that's the way. I really enjoy my team and all the different relationships we have on every level with them. So that's what makes people happy at work and they're happy to see you and discuss with things that are work-related or not. I like that. I like how you said it's about energy. You can give energy and you can get it back and you can read emotions as, is this low energy? Is it high energy? What's needed? You shared with me before we started recording that you lived in the U.S. for a little bit. Do you find that reading the emotions or reading the energy in certain situations 
is different in the U.S. versus France? Yeah, I do travel a lot and see different cultures. And I think, yeah, that is true. I did notice that. Okay. So we're going to move on to another question. How you hone your visual perceptive skills? Because you've done a lot of really amazing work. You have a certain visual perception that is very sharp. Thank you. Really what got me into medicine was scientific curiosity at first, because no one in my family was a doctor or even a nurse or any kind of paramedic. I quickly realized that I wanted to learn as much as I could, and there is really no limit to what you can learn. For pathology, I tend to think that you're as good as the number of cases you've seen. So mm-hmm. as you always have this curiosity to see more cases. And if I just have a tray of new cases and I see there's a large tumor, I cannot resist looking at it. For me, it's like minimal talent, but it's a lot of co- commitment. And mm-hmm. that means really hard work, a lot of hard, hard work. For rare tumors, like the ones I see, there's not enough examples for people to look at just from one paper. So... I'm trying to collect data banks of images of cases that can help pathologists so they can have a shot at looking at the things. The way I would like to structure this in my videos, one video giving a typical example, and then there would be just examples back to back just to try to train and show you all the variants because in the papers, you only show the nice pictures, the nice IHCs. And sometimes it's difficult or there are subtle variations. And if you want to illustrate all this, it fits in books. And so I'm working on this type of program. It's called Non-Artificial Intelligence in Pathology. Hmm. What do you think? I love it. For me, it is a lot of hard work. As you said, I think it's really repetition and seeing multiple examples of the same thing For me, it takes a while. And I admit, I actually am not able to recognize the things that I think you can recognize in terms of these melanocytic predicting what genetic alteration there may be. It's something I'm trying to work on. Your idea of a lecture like that and showing a classic example and then having multiple others, thats I love that. It goes along with deliberate practice. It's really funny because sometimes you find a new sign in the lesions and then you start seeing it and you say, how come I did not see that before? I've really been taught to do something from low power. And if you don't have an idea from low power, usually high power would not give you a better idea. That's the way I was taught. There are different ways. People have different strategies to diagnose things. Train yourself to be able to see them at low power. What's your low power gestalt? That's the idea. If you don't have one idea from low power, I'm in trouble. That happens. (laughs) It happens a lot. How often do you think that initial gestalt is wrong, though, versus right? I do a lot of multi-head discussion of cases I've never seen that I'm discovering in front of everyone. So this is where this kind of kicks in because I'm talking as I'm looking through the case. And it's a really interesting exercise that I've been doing for years now. And so I've made some mistakes. Sometimes you say, okay, here's my low power impression. Then you zoom and then immediately you know that you're wrong. But it's just like I had the idea and then I checked at high power. That idea was wrong. So I go back to low power. It's different than having no idea at low power. Okay, so this segues into my next question, which is, 
Do you have a diagnostic process? I work in a field where it has a reputation of high difficulty, and I know I've made mistakes. I will make mistakes. So I really thought this through on how to reduce the errors. The method I have developed is to have some redundancy, and that means I will look at the cases three times. This is very time-consuming, and it's going to be three different days. Everything turns around a staff meeting I organize once a week on Wednesday afternoon, where we look at all the cases I received for second opinion. I would try to look at the case before the staff, just the Gestalt, and ordering some IHCs. And then the staff will have the case. And this is a very open, everybody can talk, and we have a lot of fun. It's a friendly discussion on the cases. And if someone does not agree, I'll write their name and what they're said. And then after the staff, I will look at it a third time when I'm going to make the report at a different moment. And I'll remember the two previous times. The most important part is humility because often we don't have all the clinical knowledge we would need. But if you're always confident that you've done the best that you could at the moment you're making your diagnosis, that's the way you will not stay awake at night. And sometimes I'm too tired. I think that's very important to know when you've reached the limit, that's when you're at risk to make errors. This is so fun for me to hear your process. You're using thinking fast, which is system one, according to Daniel Kahneman, yeah. and then thinking slow, which is system two. I think it's amazing that you do that. And it does happen that I changed the diagnosis on the third time from the first and second times. You can be influenced by it's sunny outside, so everything is benign and things like that. It's not always it's going to be the same idea on the three times. And like the third time, I would look like all the sections, everything. I really think that it's really important not to be hard on yourself for these difficult cases. I also like what you just said about the weather, <laughs> <laughs> that, oh, today it's sunny outside, so maybe I'm influenced by that. A lot of cognitive psychology literature showing that biases really are influencing us when we're looking at a case. Very aware. Yes. Of so on the third day would be morning I would be alone in the lab and it's a very quiet environment at that time. That's when I choose to make the reports of the most difficult cases. So you're fresh and you have yeah. quiet and you're not really being interrupted. Is there a lesson or lessons that you wish you had learned earlier? The knowledge that nothing is set in stone and it's a great challenge. During med school, you're looking at your professor and you envision them as they're the owners of knowledge. And if you had that knowledge now, it's going to be only the knowledge at that time. You have to be aware that new things constantly emerge and there's some shifts in science. You have to understand that this will probably change how you will work in one year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. And it's very important to have the idea that Things can change and that you can change them with your practice. And at least you have to try to understand what is changing. It's a way you cannot go against these waves. You have to deal with that. That's very important. Another point is that the perfect colleague rarely exists. <laughs> at first, you really think, oh, I want someone like this. But you have to realize that you're never going to find that person. You'll never find exactly what you need. So you have 
people accept who wants to work with you to help you just have to embrace that and you have to be happy that someone wants to help you. I've had people that I tried to mentor, but it did not work out in the end, but it's okay. I taught them some stuff and I think they really helped me at that time. I try to put a lot of fun in what I do when you can, because for me, you can do a lot of very serious work in a fun environment. It's not antagonistic as some people perceive it. That's important for people to be happy with their job or coming just because they know they're going to spend some good time and also do some serious work. I agree. I think it has to be fun. It's not sustainable <laughs> if it's not fun. Do you have any final thoughts? We talked a lot about hard work. There's always going to be a risk of burnout if you don't know your limits. I'm quite lucky because I always have this little tingling in my head when I've started working too much and I know I have to do something. Personally, I do a lot of video games to exhaust all the pressure. I go into something completely different and that really is important for my brain. That's cool. Thank you for sharing that. I really had well, a good time discussing. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for spending time with me. Really enjoyed it.